Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, welcome back to the ear-bleeding country because it's SST-216, the Dinosaur Junior Bug LP. This is a landmark album that almost always gets overshadowed by a single song off the album, which we'll get to in a few episodes. So it's, it's really good to do a deep dive into Bug the Album. For a time, one of Jay Maskus's least favorite albums, but it's always been a favorite of mine. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, we've got Paul Coldry on the show. Wow. Like, that is amazing to have someone who is, you know, setting up Dino in the studio, twisting the knobs, turning the dials, getting it down. And this, like, this record sounds amazing to me still to this day. It's got that, like, live drum sound that a lot of indie rock was kind of really really cultivating around this time like not just albini but also smart studios and the sound of this record and fort apache can't wait to get into that yeah also i would say this record has been overshadowed by your living all over me maybe i feel like bug is starting to get its due yeah in the last 10 years i would say yeah it took a while though that's for sure yeah Before we do that, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Don't mind if I do. This week, Ryan, we're going to do an edition of Ryan's Recommend Roundup Street Cred Edition. Ooh, I'm going to get some street cred? Yeah. Yes! (laughs) Finally! (laughs) Okay, Uh, I'm not sure what context this band came up in. I know it was a while ago, quite, you know, I don't know, quite some time ago, we got on the topic of the band Some Velvet Sidewalk. Oh, yeah, dude. Now, I'm not sure if you recommended this album specifically, but I picked up their 1995 album, Shipwreck, which came out on K Records, as did almost all of their output. Half of this album was engineered by Greg Freeman of Pell-Mell, and it Mm -hmm. was mixed by Steve Fisk. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely on the SS tree, and maybe that's why we were talking about it. I'm pretty sure it came up due to Steve Fisk. But, uh, yeah, man, I listened to Loch Ness, like all the time by some velvet sidewalk. Hmm. There's another loose SST connection. Donna Dresch, uh, who briefly replaced Van Connor in the Screaming Trees, plays on a few tracks, actually. And and also temporarily replaced Lou Barlow and Dinosaur Jr., by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we'll get into this next week, uh, but I've been, for a reason to be... Uh, to be mentioned next week, I've been binging Treacherous Jaywalkers all week, and vocalist-guitarist Al Larson of Some Velvet Sidewalk really reminds me of Josh Hayden, actually. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this record's cool. I remember seeing this band for the first time in the Hype documentary, which was probably a first for many people. You be the cat, and I'll be the mouse. Yeah. Invite me over to your mousetrap house. I, I remember, you know not really knowing what to make of it. It's hard to believe, but that documentary came out in 1996. So I would have been 21 when I saw it. You know, my mind was definitely not open anywhere near to the degree it is now. That's for sure. Weird to think about it now. I remember when that documentary came out, grunge and like the whole Seattle explosion seemed so far in the rear view already Hmm. that it seemed right to look back at it. In 1996? Maybe, maybe. I mean, after Kurt died and some of the bands disbanded, I think people felt as though we were kind of turning a corner. But I mean, so I I would have seen that in the theater and I was three or four years younger than you 
as I am now mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. And so I was in my, like my late teens and that was like the perfect thing for me to see. I was kind of like just getting into it, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. Roosevelt. Roosevelt? Oh yeah. From Athens, man. Roosevelt? Let's call it Roosevelt. Roos? Roosevelt? Or Roosevelt. Good, hey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so an Athens band that I think you mentioned maybe because of that Fuel, seven bands from Athens, Georgia compilation? Mm, it might have been. I, I did a Athens spiel. I I, I, uh, I went through kind of the book, uh, the documentary, that, that comp, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So their 1991 self-released album, Shingle. I can see why you're into it. It's mathy, not as discordant or, you know, overbearing as some of this kind of stuff is for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also quite melodic. Some of it almost reminded me of the Meat Puppets, actually, musically and the vocals. Uh, yeah, it's it's Puppets-esque and also Firehose-esque at times for me. Yep. Yeah, people who listen to this show should definitely check out Roosevelt. You bet. Uh, do I hear a fretless bass on there, Ryan? I believe you- I do. I believe you do. You might. I haven't I haven't listened to it for a couple of months, I bet. Okay. Ryan, by far the best recommend and total street cred for you is Schindler with their two thousand album Transverse Mercator. Yeah, yeah, right. So you discovered this band when researching the UK band Mass that we've been raving about these last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Main dude here is Steve Beattie. He's he's the bassist on this, but he played drums in Mass. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like Mass a little bit. I, I think I actually prefer it, if I'm being honest. It's Whoa. It's very similar in a lot of ways. It's dark, but anthemic. The production is perfect. The songs are just great. Mm-hmm. At times, almost a Wipers feel to some of it, actually. Yeah. Especially the guitar tone. It really reminded me of the Wipers. So I was digging around trying to find some info on this band, and there's really not much. I did find an interview on YouTube with Steve. Uh, from 2009 on the Cherry Red Records YouTube page. Have you seen that? No. So Steve got into punk, this is from the interview, at a a very young age in Scotland, uh, his first love being The Stranglers, which, you know, he, he still names as his favorite band of all time, he says in the interview. He talks a lot about his bands in the interview, uh, like the some of the crust punk bands he was in that you mentioned called disgust and stone the crows stone the crows anarcho-punk yeah yeah Yeah, he talks about getting really interested in that later like you know in the early to mid 80s um the anarcho-punk music through the crass mainly yeah of course uh he started you know and the lifestyle he was really into he started his own label endangered music and put out a number of releases mainly from that movement circa 85 to 88 That was kind of when the label ran. He talks a lot about that in the interview, but the main focus of of the interview is how he basically started Plastic Head Distribution, a.k.a. PhD, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a huge record distributor in the UK. Uh, Just totally grassroots DIY work ethic that he brought to it. Uh, So I hit up Steve for some info on Schindler, and here's what he told me. I formed the band after Mass Split. I drummed for crustcore band Disgust and then picked up a bass and thought, I'm going to write my own songs. I contacted mass singer E, and he was into doing it. 
we recruited Danny from UK emo band Shutdown and unknown guitarist Matt Lurwell, who went on to play for Octoberfile and Prague Rockers Warm Rain. We did an album and three singles. We gigged a lot and did a UK tour with the Stranglers. And then one single later, we quit, and I wanted to move on musically to do something harder. I wrote all the music bar one song, Nobody Said. E wrote all of the lyrics. The tour with the Stranglers was the Mach 2 lineup. Pretty much everyone who is a Stranglers fan doesn't like anything else. <laughs> so it wasn't a success for us, although the tour in general was really good fun. The Stranglers sucked, though. Paul Roberts was the singer, and it just wasn't the Stranglers. More of a karaoke version. We still enjoyed the experience, and I learned a lot from it. Matt and I duly moved on and formed Octoberfile. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Awesome. Good digging. Yeah, thanks, man. Everybody needs to check out that album by Schindler. and Told you. Need to track down those singles, too, because that album just rules, man. Yeah. What do you have? All right, man. So for my spiel this week, I've actually got a shadowy spiel from a shadowy planet. Yeah, you telegraphed this last week, so I've been I've been waiting for it all week. Okay. I have a feeling I know why we're talking about shadowy men, but let's see. Okay, let's see. I, and I mean, I could go on for days about them. I'm going to try and keep it pretty brief because I do have a purpose as part of this spiel, as I try to. I try to have a purpose with my spiels. Yep. Um, but this one really starts, and it all starts for me when it comes to Shadowy Man, with the TV show, The Kids in the Hall. I hope everyone out there knows what The Kids in the Hall show is. It's a show, like a sketch comedy show in Canada. It started in 1989 on the CBC. It eventually got picked up by Lorne Michaels in Saturday Night Live, and um, at least one of the players, Mark McKinney, went on to snl and then i think it was picked up by like one of the you know u.s uh broadcast companies i don't know but i mean legendary in canada and it started in 1989 right when i was like the perfect age for the kids in the hall for their brand of you know subversive absurd brilliant controversial boundaries pushing punk rock sketch comedy that was at the times both super stupid and also incredibly thought-provoking. Yeah. And and the Shadowy Men music was the perfect soundtrack. Because besides the sketches, one of the things that defined Kids in the Hall was this music performed by Shadowy Men. Now, I just started watching the reboot of Kids in the Hall. They've got a new season out, essentially, you know, several decades later. And it has it all for me, yet again. I mean, they really very rarely miss the mark for me but one one thing i didn't expect when i turned it on but as soon as i did i realized it when it hit me and it hit me like a ton of bricks and it was during the opening credits for the show now in the original opening credits for kids in the hall and in some of the sketches you see kind of flashes of shadowy men on a shadowy planet they, there was a mystique about them. You know, they never put pictures of themselves. They never had their names on the records. Their videos were, you know, I think they only maybe even had one. It was just like puppets, you know. Um, but there were always flashes of the band now and then during the show. And you'd get a glimpse of them. You know, Brian Connolly on guitar, Don Pyle on drums, Reed Diamond on bass. All legendary in their own right. And I'll get into them in a bit more in a second here. Reed, unfortunately, though, passed away in 2001. And a few years before that, they had disbanded. So there, for me, growing up, there was really no chance to see Shadowy Men. 
They did start up again in 2012, though, with Dallas Good from the Sadies on bass. And Dallas very much did this as a tribute to Reed through and through. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Dallas was like playing Reed's actual bass, like as a full on tribute. Uh, but of course, a couple of months ago, Dallas also tragically passed away. So I'm watching the new season of Kids in the Hall, and right after the opening sketch, the opening credits start, and the song starts having an average weekend, which I think a lot of people consider or know as like the Kids in the Hall theme song. But as soon as it started, I thought, oh man, they're going to flash Dallas. And they did, and I totally choked up. Yeah, And it was really unexpectedly moving for me and it just shows the power of music and also what a guy Dallas was so with all of that what I wanted to do was give a shadowy spiel with a Sadie's finish but in order to do that I got to go way back to the beginning okay you ready yeah so as mentioned the shadowy men are Brian Connolly on guitars Don Pyle on drums Reed Diamond on bass and ground zero for shadowy men is actually Calgary Alberta in about 1976, 1977, with the band called Buick McCain, which to some is actually ground zero for Calgary Punk. Now, if you want to read about this era of Calgary Punk, you can pick up the 2012 book, Perfect Youth, The Birth of Canadian Punk Rock by Sam Sutherland. Buick McCain had Brian Connolly and Reed Diamond in it, who moved to Toronto and formed Crash Kills 5 with Don Pyle. They had a self-released single in 1980, which Ugly Pop Records re-released in 2012. When Crash Kills 5 broke up, though, Reed played in a band called The Good Guys, who also broke up, but then kind of reformed with Brian Connolly and Don Pyle joining Reed and The Singer. The Singer left, and in 1984, you've got The Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, who are, as I said, an instrumental band that might be a surf band, but they were way, way more blending country, western, rock, rockabilly, swing together with surf vibes for sure. And as I said, the perfect, perfect soundtrack for Kids in the Hall. But their records are amazing in and of themselves. They release tons of singles, including some that come with board games and tiddlywinks called Schlagers. And some that come in the lid of a stovetop Jiffy Pop pan. Many of them were collected, their singles that is, on their Savvy Showstoppers LP comp from 1988. Then there is the Dim the Lights and Chill the Ham 1991 album on Cargo Records. And then, of course, my favorite still, uh, the Sport Fishing album 1993 on Cargo, which Steve Albini produced or, or recorded. Steve Albini recorded. And Steve was a huge, huge fan of Shadowy Men, too. And Every Shadowy Men record is a classic. They also did the music for the film Double Happiness, kind of their last album, 1995, that came out. Um, and they also backed Fred Schneider from the B-52s on the 1996 Just Fred album, also uh, recorded by Steve Albini. Um, Shadowy Men backs him on some songs, uh, as does Six Finger Satellite. And then the band Deadly Cupcake, Brant. Do you remember Deadly Cupcake? I do not. <laughs> so so de on this record that Shadowy Men is on, another band, Deadly Cupcake, also backs Fred Schneider. And Deadly Cupcake is Rick Sims from The Digits and Gaza Strippers, Russell Simmons from Honeymoon Killers and John Spencer, and Tom from Tar. So if you want to get a perfect slice of mid-90s Albini B-52s noise, get that record. But I want to mention one of my favorite tracks by Shadowy Men as well. It's a cover 
of the Diode song, Tired of Waking Up Tired. Just an absolute classic Canadian punk song, but also done by shadowy men in in the instrumental way that only they can do it. It's it's on a split single with Change of Heart from 1991. I just love that single. I love it. Yeah. And as you know, Brant, our band actually covered the shadowy men song Good Cop, Bad Cop on the shadowy men tribute album better than the average weekend from 2001 on deep eddie records now we're on that that's cool but the best song on that record that tribute is the sadie's version of the shadowy men classic algoma reflections yep now shadowy men disbanded in 96 in part apparently because uh pile and diamond wanted to record an album with jad fair and Connolly wasn't really jazzed about that and so they did though as the band phonocomb with dallas good in the band they released an album called Monsters and Lullabies 1996. So that's Don Pyle, Reed Diamond, Dallas Good with Jad Fair. Phonocomb also put out the album Fresh Gasoline, which is killer, on Quarterstick Records, which Albini also recorded. Also a couple of singles. Um, and so that's kind of what Don Pyle and Reed Diamond were up to. But what did Brian Connolly do? He went on to form, at first, a band called The Heat Seekers with Cindy Beatty and Sean Dignan from which band, Brent? Uh, I want to say Creep Show, but it's not Creep Show. It's going to kill you, man. Yeah, it's uh, Sucker Punch. Bingo, ding, yep. ding, ding, who have a classic Canadian rockabilly cramps stomper called yep. Carols from the Canyon from 1994. Uh, the Heat Seekers only put out one split single with a band called The Shuttlecocks, but the most notable thing that Brian Connolly did, other than backing Nico Case, as did Dallas and other members of the Sadies, was a band called Atomic Seven. That's the only time I've ever seen a shadowy person play is when Brian was fronting Atomic 7. And now Brian's playing on that record, or those records, I should say, just off the charts. Oh, it's insane. It's insane, man. Like, yeah. he really, really had come a long way as a guitarist. By the time these albums came out in the early 2000s, there's Gowns by Edith Head and Angel Billy Caliente. Those are both on Mint Records. And then Something for the Girl with Everything on eleganza in 07 just amazing playing you know in the shadowy men tradition i guess but just at another level of rockabilly and swing guitar playing as well so that was kind of what brian was up to in the early 2000s as mentioned unfortunately reed passed away in 2001 i should also mention too like don Pyle has done a ton of recording and engineering you can see his name all over the place on a bunch of amazing canadian recordings don was also you know, we've been talking about photographers lately on the show. In particular, Don was one of those people who documented the Toronto punk scene from way, way back. He's got an amazing book out called Trouble in the Camera Club, a photographic narrative of Toronto's punk history, 1976 to 1980. Um, just amazing. Came out in 2011. My buddy Graham actually bought me one of Don's prints. I've got it up on my wall. I look at it all day long here of Joe Strummer that Don took. Um, just amazing photos. Everyone should check out that book. But, you know, that came out in 2011. And then the next year in 2012, the Shadowy Men kind of started up again. But again, this time with Dallas Good from the Sadie's playing bass. And as I mentioned, you know, a huge tribute to Reed when Dallas is playing. That's his friend, right? And he's using, I believe he's using Reed's bass as well. It's pretty much, you know, the best and maybe on the only person who could ever fill in for Reed in Shadowy Men, arguably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, for me, Dallas, where did Dallas come from, right? 
Dallas first entered my musical world with the band St. Natras in uh, 1994 on the album 888 from Raw Energy Records. Um, St. Natras is a criminally unknown band, but they were really weird. Um, And by the way, St. Natras also featured Jeff Beardle from the Guilt Parade Band, which is another legendary Canadian punk band. In 1994, though, Dallas formed the Sadies with his brother Travis on guitar, same as Dallas, and then Sean Dean from Flag Camp, just killer, Flag Camp, and then Mike Belitsky from Jellyfish Babies, also killer. So you've got like a Canadian supergroup in the Sadies, and they were, you know, a spaghetti western, instrumental, traditional country, western, surf, and in the later years, psych band of the highest order. Yeah, they have a new album coming out, like Dallas's last. Exactly. So they, they have, you know, a string of well over a dozen amazing classic records, including some where they're backing Nico Case, Andre Williams, John Doe, John Langford, Gord Downey. Um, they also had a very tight kinship with Blue Rodeo. Um, that was developed over the years, you know, playing on each other's albums. There's not a bad record in the bunch. And uh, they are one of the best live bands of all time, uh, the Sadies, and all around just excellent people. So with Dallas passing away a couple of months ago, and that means, you know, no more shadowy men. The future of the Sadies, I think, is a bit uncertain. I see that they are going to play some shows with Kurt Vile sitting in, I saw. Hmm. I don't know if they're going to carry on much. Maybe just some uh, some quick promotion for their new record as you mentioned colder streams which is coming out in july so i wanted to when i when i saw dallas as i said to bring it all back to the beginning when i saw dallas watching the new season of kids in the hall it just like it struck me kind of to my core about how much amazing uh music and how missed these people will be so had to do a shadowy spiel after seeing that i just had to with a uh, a sadie's finale and everyone should go and get that Colder Streams record, like you just mentioned. It will be an awesome Sadie's record. It will be. Yeah. Good spiel, man. I have not watched any of the new um, season yet, but like you, growing up in Canada and having two channels at the time, like you couldn't miss, uh, new, uh, you couldn't miss Kids in the Hall, and I loved it. Yeah. You know, it, it, Late same. at night. Late at night on CBC. Set your VCR. Loved it, and I still do. I've got the the box set of the complete series. I got to be honest with you, that last thing they did, that when death comes to town, didn't really do it for me. A lot of people did not like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there new Shadowy Men music, or like, I mean, I mean, I guess it would be hard to know if it was new or just. To my ears, it sounds like it is all new little snippets recording with Dallas. They re-recorded the theme song with Dallas, oh. as I understand it. So They, they got to release that incidental music, man. Every time I listen to that show or watch that show, I think of that Sadie's album, actually, where the, the soundtrack to that uh, Ed Roth documentary. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I, it's, absolutely, it's like yeah. that. It's all just 20-second snippets, right? Yep. And, and the shadowy men stuff, like they could do that, you know, absolutely with, with all that stuff. And, you know, I'd, I'd be all over it. Have you read, I mean, there's a few books, but the, the one really good one about the, the band is, uh, I can't remember the name of, or about the TV show. I read Bruce McCullough's book. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the only one. I've that read. one's good too. The, what's it called? Punk rock dad or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Some, or a young drunk punk or something. That's what. Yeah, that one's good. Yeah. Uh, but the the 
there's like a, a book about about kids in the hall and it talks about shadowy men they're they're in it and everything it's yeah re- it's really good i haven't i i should i'm surprised i haven't read that one yeah yeah you'll love it man and uh you know, a few things that I thought of while you were talking actually is uh, your friend Graham that you mentioned that bought you that that print uh, was in it was in another Canadian instrument band that that you and I just love called Huevos Rancheros. Yeah, yeah, Huevos. I think we're often unfairly compared to Shadowy Men. They are both instrumental bands, yes, but totally distinct from each other. For sure, they are. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Cool spiel, man. I got to listen to some shadowy men and watch that new season of Kids in the Hall. Yes, you do. And yeah. and I can't wait for the new Sadie's record, man. Yeah. Rest in peace, Reed in Dallas. Yeah, man. That's all I got. I, I, I know it's a bit of a longer one, but I had to do the shadowy spiel. Should we get into some bug? Yeah. History lesson, part one. All right. So we love Dino on the show. And, and Brent and I, uh, we've seen them a ton, you know, live and have, you know, bonded over them in the past. Um, I think, Brent, you mentioned on one of the prior episodes, you might even consider one of their later era albums, Farm, your favorite of all time. Is that fair? It is. I listened to it this week, actually. Love yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. And it is. It's killer, right? Yep. Um, for the earlier era records... Um, you mentioned how you're living all over me kind of overshadows bug and I, I couldn't agree more bug might be my favorite of the first three though, in particular because of Lou Barlow's bass playing. But it's interesting because like, you know, you didn't write any of the music on this record. Jay wrote it all, but Lou is all over it. And Murph's drumming is just like, just a machine, man. Like just the, the machine gun rolls on this record. So the three of them are in top form by this time and here's how we get to bug on this show we've covered you're living all over me on sst 130 we also covered the little fury things 12 inch on sst 152 where we had mora jasper on as a guest that's killer and we'll talk a bit more about mora in a minute here and then we have this album sst 216 bug which came out after sst 220 the freak scene single which we'll get to in four more episodes so it's interesting to like i said to do the bug record before freak scene because i do think freak scene really overshadowed it kind of like you're living all over me but i think that it acts one of those situations where it actually works out really well for us because you know i like doing freak scene as a release after bug because it really allows us to focus on the record this is their last lp for SST and it's also the last LP with the classic lineup of J. Lou Murph until they reformed some years later. Um, They had by this point changed their name to Dinosaur Jr. from the originally Dinosaur. Interesting in the liner notes to the 2005 Merge Records reissue of the Bug album, Byron Coley says that part of the reason that they had to change their name was because they were getting some recognition and that's where you know the the original dinosaur said hey wait a second we've got that name so it really speaks to how they were becoming more well known they were touring um and they were building a following around this point too jay had moved to new york Um, lou was doing his own recordings for homestead records and the band was really fracturing Bug, as I mentioned, has no writing on it from either of Lou or Murph. They play on it. But again, like 
they really put their stamp on it. They just didn't write the songs in the same way that Jay did. And it was really, when you read up on this record, it sounds like, you know, these songs were really dictated by Mascus at this point. Also in the 2005 Merge Records reissue, there's a great quote from Robert Pollard in there who describes the sound of Dinosaur Jr. as burying strong melodies inside of a total sonic attack. And that's just perfect. Yep. At the time, and for a period after, as I mentioned at the outset of the episode, Jay really did not like this record. But it has since become a classic Dinosaur Jr. record. There's a, a live LP that came out on 2012 on Outer Battery, as well as the uh, DVD from the 930 Club, where uh, there is they, they play the album. Um, there's some onstage, it says, onstage interview with Henry Rollins. I watched that. The live footage is great. The interview with Henry is not is not the greatest. It's kind of like, eh, whatever. Not because of Henry. <laughs> no, no, it's not because of Henry. It's just kind of like, you know, the band is not super engaging, I guess you could put it that way. Yeah. Um, there's been countless reissues of Bug. I mean, I've, I've got my original uh, on CD. I've got the Merge reissue, and then I've got the Jag Jaguar on vinyl reissue that came out some years later. Now... There was really, though, nothing like Dinosaur Jr. at the time. It, they really were kind of forging a new sound in the American underground indie rock scene. There were definitely bands that they had some kinship with in terms of melodic, proficient guitar players and, and technical playing, but lots of noise, just like really bringing the volume, right? So there really wasn't anything like them at the time. Here is uh, a quote from Andrew Earle's Gimme Indie Rock book. And just to give you a sense, like, you know, we're both big fans of Dinosaur Jr. Andrew has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven Dinosaur Jr. releases in his book, 500 Essential American Underground Rock Albums. Yeah. That might be the most of anyone in the book. I bet it is. Here's what he says, though, about Dinosaur Jr. and Bug. It's kind of speaking to uh, the time frame of the band. That Dinosaur Jr.'s third full-length, Bug, succeeds as a worthy follow-up to the band's groundbreaking and rightfully legendary sophomore effort, You're Living All Over Me, is no small feat. As the band's second album became relatively successful and original members Jay Maskus, Lou Barlow, and Murph found themselves touring the shit out of it in the confines of a van, Internal relations quickly withered into mostly unspoken hostility between Barlow and Mascus, ending right after Bug was released on Halloween 1988. Though critics and fans alike often claim album opener Freak Scene to be the first true example of the American indie rock sound, soon to be embraced by the likes of Superchunk, Archers of Loaf, Buffalo Tom, and so on, the song has too much variety to be thus pigeonholed. Besides, genre-building blocks can probably be found in earlier efforts, such as Husker Du's Makes No Sense at All. Still, the track gained noticeable traction on college radio, with the single version reaching number seven during its 12 weeks on the indie chart. Now, we will get into Freak Scene a bit more in a few episodes, but I was thinking, like, that is probably the most well-known Dinosaur Jr. song, with the exception of Feel the Pain. Is that and, fair? Nope. I, you know what? I have a question for you about that when we get to the tracks, Ryan. 
Really? You, yep. You're going to say that freak I'm scene and feel you. the I'm freak scene you. and freak scene and feel the pain are not the two most well known Dinosaur Junior songs? Just hold off till we get to the tracks. I have oh a quiz for god. you. Oh my god! Okay, all right. Okay. Well, here's another spiel out of the Dinosaur Junior book, put out by the publisher Rocket Eighty Eight, which of course has those just like ultra high quality books that are insanely expensive. Speaking of Joe Strummer, I'm waiting for my Joe Strummer book on Rocket 88 to come in the mail. Um, but here's a quote from the band, and this is in the Bug chapter. Um, and it kind of shifts from band member to band member just to kind of give a sense of where their head was at. It also sets the stage really well for the interview. Here's what Murph said. Bug was more of an afterthought, more of a chore to make than your living all over me had been. Kind of like we have to do this rather than want to do it. For a long time, Jay was like, that's my least favorite record because of that. Here's what Jay said. Lou was really a problem during that time. He wanted the band to end, but didn't want to be the one to quit. So he was making it really, at least as I saw it, he was making it really difficult, not contributing anything. And here's Lou. Our success then was all down to Jay as far as I was concerned. And we were kind of big on the cover of music magazines and everything. And it was all Jay's doing, not mine. I was proud of what I contributed to the band, but Jay's opinion of who I was was far more relevant than my playing. Here's Murph again. Of course, when you get to a certain level, then things are expected of you. But at our minds, once we'd made it onto SST and released an album with them, that was it. We figured before getting there that we'd probably not be a band anymore because we'd reached our goal. But everyone was asking, what's next? We were kind of, what do you mean? We've achieved our goal. Here's Jay again. I felt it was rushed and that some of the songs could have been better. It was the first album where I was doing everything. Those guys were there for three days, but I did everything else. Here's Murph. We had put so much energy into your living all over me that we felt exhausted by the time we were making Bug. I don't know if Jay and Lou liked the more polished sound of Bug because they were more into the hardcore sound at the time we were making it. Here's Jay. We play songs from it now, and I like it better. And here's Lou. I didn't think Bug was great at the time, but I did later. Hmm. Funny to hear, you know, them talk about Jay kind of saying, you know, Lou wasn't contributing or whatever, and, and Lou saying it was all down to Jay. I feel like... Jay Mascus has such a reputation for being a control freak. Yeah. At least back then that like he didn't want it. Didn't want any contribution right. from them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, because I you know, I have such a hard time sometimes thinking about this era of the band and and following all of the band members post bug and understanding kind of what they did. Um, I just feel like it really, really comes down to, you know, three dudes touring, stuck in a van, and really, really bad communication. Oh, well, Lou's been pretty open about his own mental health at the time, too. Like, there was, you know, I don't think Lou Barlow really liked Lou Barlow. I know. I know, much, exactly. You know? Exactly. And and I think he was, you know, well, actually, we'll get into a bit of it when I... Um, read some spiels out of Michael Azarad's book. I think Lou was kind of sabotaging it here and there too. Yeah. And speaking of Michael Azarad's book, here's a quote about, uh, about bug. Now 
I don't necessarily think that Michael Azarad gets it right in his book in all places, but you know, hey, I haven't written a book, so who am I to say? But here, here's what Michael Azarad says about Bug here. It's no wonder that the Songs of Dinosaurs third album, Bug, didn't quite have the spark of your living all over me. So totally disagree with that. The songs didn't come easily to Mascus, and it didn't help that they were in a hurry to capitalize on all the acclaim they'd received from the previous year or so. Mascus says he had been hoping that Barlow would take up the songwriting slack, but Barlow was in full retreat and deeply immersed in his homemade Sebado tapes, which Cosloy was now releasing on Homestead. Despite his prolific Sebado output, Barlow wrote no songs for Bug. Quote, I realized that if I wasn't going to be able to interact personally with the people in the band, there's no way I'm going to be able to give them songs I really care about, said Barlow. If I had tried to interact with Jay and tried to write songs, the band would have broken up a lot sooner. (laughs) Well, I mean, also, Jay is pretty legendary for not really communicating about things. He's the stonewaller. Yep. Stonewaller, for sure. So here's a bit more about how the band is really breaking down while on tour from Michael Azarad's book. Starting with the Bug Tour, Barlow occasionally abandoned his usual parts and indulged in what was called sonic dronings. Sonic youth-inspired playing that wasn't anywhere near what he'd played on record. Barlow had been playing tape collages between songs for a year or so, surely borrowing the idea straight from Sonic Youth. But now he was setting them off during songs. It may well have been Barlow's way of asserting himself after being so subdued. At any rate, Mascus took the unsolicited modification of his music as a personal affront. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of those things that I don't really like about this book and I get it I get it that there's a there has to be a time frame but the chapter on Dinosaur Jr. basically ends on the album Bug there's really nothing after it but it does talk about going to the major and here's what uh, here's what the book says about Dinosaur Jr. leaving SST by this time Mascus had decided to move to a major label quote the thing I thought was great about it was they would just pay you on time says Mascus I like Greg Ginn and stuff, but they wouldn't pay you. Homestead, I didn't like, and they were more just like dicks. They didn't pay, and they didn't care. It was like all these indie labels that are ripping you off are supposed to be better than the major label who won't rip you off. (laughs) I'm pretty sure, maybe you're going to have something about this too, but I'm pretty sure Jay made Murph kick Lou out of the band too. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was... I, I, yeah, well, I, I wasn't going to go into it too much, but I mean, essentially what happened is I think, you know, there's, there's a few different accounts. There are some that suggest that Murph kicked Lou out. There's also one that I kind of prefer the best because it's the most Jay Mascus, I think, in that he broke up the band, but then decided to reform it with just Murph. <laughs> that one, That's I, a that, classic move. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably the most Mascus move yeah. of all. Now, of course, lose out of the band. They get Donna Biddle or Donna Dresch to cover on bass for a while. And Van Connor also covered for a bit. Um, and then they landed with Mike Johnson. And, and that was the lineup for a good while until they reformed the band some years later with that first amazing album with the, the classic lineup, Beyond. Yeah. 
since we're on Bug, I also want to talk about the artwork on Bug. Now, we had Mara Jasper on the show, so it's really cool to also point out, of course, that Mara did the artwork for this. And there's a great quote from her in this Numero box set, the Dinosaur Jr. 7-inch box set, Visitors. Here's what Mara said about the artwork for the Bug album, which is, which is legendary in its own right. In the fall of 87, I left University of Massachusetts for a more experimental program, the Studio for Interrelated Media at MassArt in Boston. Jay also left UMass that year and moved to New York City to attend Hunter College. It seemed like a limitless period of people, ideas, shows, fun, and access. The students at MassArt were also a lot more sophisticated. The parties were better and classes were more challenging and the Boston scene was full of great bands. By the time Jay asked me to do something for Bug, my ideas about art were changing rapidly and I wanted to make something that could think as well as feel. The Bug cover was the hardest to make and ultimately my least favorite of all the covers I did for Dinosaur. I had plenty of drawings that made abstract attempts at expressing something personal Images of x-rays, fossils, and tree stumps. They all looked like what became the bug cover, but with lots of scribbles and writing, and no bug. I was also painting and drawing with thick, clumpy paint and plaster, and embedding objects into the materials. I had a handful of toys, rocks, doll parts, and gummy candy that I was moving around and considering. Some of those gummy worms and a huge gummy fly ultimately made the back cover. For the front, I ended up using an extreme close-up of a mosquito's head, blown up into something really grotesque. I vaguely recall wanting to build the mosquito out of gummy candy, but losing interest. The original piece included lots of metallic paint, and it looked completely different from what's now known as the bug cover. Amazingly, I gave no thought at all about how the original might reproduce. Jay tipped me off as to how crummy the test pressings looked. Basically four shades of poopy, mud-colored sludge caked in around the mosquito head. There have been better looking versions than that first pressing, but unless someone decides to do it in gold ink, it will never look quite right. Hmm. So interesting, you know, seems like there's just so much about this album that at the time people were not happy with. Well, it might be also one of those things with the, just the, you know, the vibes were so dark that, you know, it just brings up bad memories for people, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny though, because again, Mara is not pleased with how it turned out, but it totally fits the dinosaur junior aesthetic, the dinosaur junior sound. Um, the album cover artwork and the back cover are, they're legendary now at this point. Hey, Ryan, have you ever seen this magazine, Maggot Brain? Is that the Third Man Records yeah. magazine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've never actually held one in my hand. Do you subscribe to it? I do, yeah. So this, oh, okay. this issue um, from May of 2020 mm. has a piece by Kevin Arrow called Gainesville Soda Can Riot, 1988 or 1989. He's not sure. And it's subtitled Dinosaur Jr. on tour for Bug. And there's some great photos of the band here. 
Jamascus rocking those mud honey beads. Um, Lou on the Rick. Yep, here's what it says. Dinosaur Jr. was on tour in Florida in support of their album Bug, released in October of 1988. My travel companion Sean D. and I drove up from Miami in my 79 VW van for two shows, one in Gainesville and the other perhaps in Tallahassee, Florida. We left the morning of the show and arrived in Gainesville after the five-hour drive with just enough time to find the venue on the campus of the University of Florida. The show was in a small UF commissary or student union. It was not a concert venue and was likely organized by the radio station's stoner nerds. (laughs) We would soon learn that the space had zero acoustical merit. Murph, Lou, and Jay quietly set up amps and instruments by themselves, unpacking pedals and cables from their own thrift store suitcases with little or no interaction. It was only later I learned of the band's lack of affection for each other. Fewer than 150 people were in attendance, which allowed me access to the very front of the, quote, stage, which was actually only a one-foot-high riser. The show was very loud, possibly louder than you imagine. A few freshmen attempted to stir up a weak mosh pit. I held my position and took these photographs printed here. After a generous onslaught of high-volume music, everything abruptly screeched to a halt. The power pulled while fluorescent lights suddenly came on. The room erupted into chaos as campus police entered, declaring the show over due to noise complaints. Chairs and soda cans were thrown and everyone went running towards the exit. On my way up, I scooped up a University of Florida campus police cap which had fallen off some cop's head in the ruckus. Later in the evening, I encountered the Dinosaur Junior van being loaded up by Jay. I complimented him on the set and asked if he liked Neil Young. Oh brother, how embarrassing. (laughs) Then I proposed a trade for some band merch. I was broke and really wanted a t-shirt. Jay asked about my hat and we settled on the campus police cap for a shirt trade. Nice. I wore that shirt until it disintegrated. A few months after that, I was in a Miami record store and picked up the May 1989 Melody Maker magazine. It had guitar superstar Jay Mascus and Robert Smith from The Cure together on the cover. Odd pairing, I thought, and flipped open to the article only to find Jay wearing his University of Florida campus police cap for the teen beat style headshot. I returned the magazine to the rack walking away satisfied and knowing that I have really made a difference in the world. <laughs> I, don't know, I just thought that was a interesting snapshot of Dinosaur Jr. on tour for Bug. Yeah, and Jay totally goes full Neil on this record too, hey? Oh, yeah. Full Neil, and in, yeah. a, in the best way. Well, you know what? Neil Young went full Jay Mascus too, though. Like in, you the, li- in, the, in the 90s, hey? Oh, yeah. You yeah. listen to the stuff he started doing in Crazy Horse, like Weld? That is totally influenced by this stuff. And I mean, like he took Sonic Youth on tour yeah, and, and did an album called Ark, which is like, you know, inspired, I would say, directly by Sonic Youth. Yeah. So yeah. killer. Well, let's talk about how this album sounds by maybe turning it over to the interview. What, what do we need to know before we do that? Well, I'll just tell you about a few of the names you're going to hear so everyone... Uh, gets the the reference points. So we're going to be talking about where this was recorded, which is Fort Apache North. So one of the engineers, Paul Coldery, and Sean Slade, kind of his partner uh, in the studio, engineered uh, the record. They've done lots together. Um, 
The studio was opened and operated by Paul, Sean, Jim Fitting, and Joe Harvard in spring 1986. You'll hear about the band Sex Execs that Paul was uh, in. He played bass, Sean on rhythm guitar and sax, and Jim Fitting uh, on sax and harmonica. They were all in the same class at Yale together. Uh, and then they joined fo- forces with Joe Harvard and, and just got to work, man. Uh, they moved into their first base in Roxbury in October of 85 and were so busy right out of the gate. Within a year, they moved to a bigger space in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, located on Camp Street and known as Fort Apache North. Around this time, they brought in Gary Smith as studio manager and they just went all in. Gary is really credited as like, you know, headhunting bands almost mm-hmm. to, to come and record. Um, this space was right above the offices of Rounder Records, which was doing really well at the time with, you know, those first few records by George Thorogood and the Destroyers, which are awesome records, by the way. Uh, so you'll hear some more about, about that and what happened with the studio later on. But uh, with that, let's throw it to Paul. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Paul Coldery. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, before we get into the SST stuff, I want to go way back. Now, are you from Boston originally? Um, not originally. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm. but uh, moved to Boston, moved to New Haven to go to school and at Yale and met Sean, played there that I ended up working with and a lot of other people have ended up working with. Mm. And we all kind of drifted up to Boston after that. It's the nearest place to be. What was the scene like at, at Yale at that time? Well, there was a lot of music, um, a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, I ended up, my senior year, I was doing all this kind of independent arts music stuff. David Geffen taught a course, oh. <laughs> and uh, I got into that. And uh, uh, Robert Palmer, not the singer, the yeah. guy who wrote for the New York Times, was a very, the critic, very yeah. astute critic. Yeah. He taught a course. Uh, and I was part of the Ellington Oral History Project, which Duke Ellington left all his papers and stuff to Yale. Mm. And our job was to go around. This was, you know, the late mid to late seventies. So our job was to contact people that had known Duke who were still alive and go and interview them and get those interviews into the archives, you know? Ah, okay. So it was really cool because, uh, you could call anyone and say, hi, I'm from the Yale Ellington Oral History Project. I, I need to do an interview with you. And people would be like, oh, sure. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Instant I mean, credibility. I, I know nothing. You know what I mean? But I interviewed John Hammond, the, oh, the wow. uh, yeah. famous A&R man, mm-hmm. who was, couldn't have been nicer. What a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all kinds of people. Teal Macero, producers. Uh, Frank Driggs, who ran the archive that had all the he did the Robert Johnson albums. Um, you know, just, it was, it was really fun. I mean, a, a friend of mine, one of the other guys in the class, we went and interviewed, uh, Max Roach at his house in Connecticut and watched a football game with him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was the advantage of going to Yale at that time. Every, there were a lot of freaks around and you could kind of write your own ticket. Right. You know? Okay. And you and Sean are already starting to play in bands together. I, I, I have that your first band, cool, yeah. or, or one of your first bands, was Maud Lang. No, we Maud Lang was until we both got to Boston after school. Ah, okay. Um, at at school, we had some kind of fun, like kind of party bands. Like 
we just played like kink songs, really punk rocky. We were into like the Clash and stuff, but we weren't trying to write our own right. Clash songs. Right. I mean, I think we wrote some very sort of primitive, primitive songs, but nothing too exciting. <laughs> um, but when we got out of school, I, I went to California for a while and uh, played in some bands out there. And Sean went up to Boston and they started a band. And then when I got to Boston about a year after that, about 1980, um, that's when Mod Lang started. And we were a huge, big star freak. So that's why, obviously, why we were called Mod Lang. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, what what are you thinking at this point? career-wise are you thinking you want to get into <laughs> engineering or or did you know what you wanted no to do? we were we were young and we were playing in rock bands and we i think we would legitimately tried to be a successful rock band i mean mm-hmm. um the band that, that ended the band that ended up being successful was called the sex Exaction. Yeah. so we had a local hits on the radio we went into the studio and recorded our own material and you know it was i mean we didn't have the really the right ingredients to do to go all the way. Yep. Looking back right now, you, don't, you just figure you're going to try really hard and and somehow overcome anything that you have to overcome. But uh, you know, it's a different world back then. It was a little more possible if you knew people and you know there were clubs to play and fanzines and you know you could get a record deal and the record companies tried to break new acts and there was a kind of a, uh, there was a system you know that that it was. We kind of learned a little bit about that system by trying, just trying to be, you know, musicians. And, and um, I mean, we were a good band. We had some nights, man, where we just destroyed, you know, everything. And it, it was fun. It's fun to do. And something you should do when you're young, <laughs> I think. Um, and then it wasn't, we, all, we did our own, we had our own studio in our house where we did demos. It gradually took over more and more. Of, of, of my attention, certainly. You know, I wasn't ever a songwriter. So I got into the engineering side of it and the recording the demos and that kind of thing. Started doing the driving, you know? Right. And uh, so we kind of went from went from there. And that's that's where like, we started to learn the, uh, the the craft of recording or whatever you want to call it, you know? Because right. how, how do you put a song together? How do you get some weird sounds? You know, we had a we lived in a big Victorian house in Dorchester, Mass. Sean and Sean and the other guys in the in that band. And uh, we um, the 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 control room was in the attic, and then we ran a snake down to the basement, and people played in the basement. And we had an intercom system, and it was kind <laughs> of you know we didn't have very sophisticated equipment, but we did some pretty cool recording. Yeah, recording. I'm assuming bands other than the Sex Execs also. Oh yeah, we sort of have friends come over and. That's where the idea of a studio came from because we realized partly we were kind of getting kicked out of the house and we started to think, we, we joined forces with friends who had a kind of similar studio in Cambridge and we said, well, let's get out of our houses and get a bass and, you know, there's, there's a demand for this. We could, I could see pretty easily that people would pay to be recorded, you know, like mm-hmm. it was it was a viable business model. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so much anymore, but at the time, at the time in Boston, I'm talking about 1981, two, three, you know, at that time you could, you could go into any, you could do it at home. You could make a recording. And if it was cool, you could just take the tape, the quarter inch tape to the radio station and they would make a cart of it, which is, they played all their songs on carts, Yep, like eight, you know, um, infinite loop tapes and, uh, and they play it, you know, um, 
and we, we got quite a bit of attention from the song that we did, and we, we pressed our own 12 inches, to, you know, to a two-song 12-inch single. Yeah. It was called My Ex, and we we was on the radio. We got lots of jobs from it. You know, it was, it was one of those things where we were kind of do, did it ourselves, and, you know, it was happening. So we, we learned about things that way, kind of ground, ground up, making records, what sounds good. Got some help from other engineers all the way. But there were a lot of studios, there were a lot of clubs. You know, it, it was a good scene. There were a lot of bands. People cared. People went out, you know, there was a, a big local culture of, you know, battle of the bands or whatever, you know. Just, you know, people were aware of other bands and people were actively competing to be on the radio. And it was a very, very, you know, early 80s in Boston was a very vibrant scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who, who were the sex execs playing with? For touring and local bands, like any memorable shows that that stand out for you? Well, we used to we used to play with the Del Fuegos a lot in the early days. Yeah. Um, although our our music wasn't similar, <laughs> but we we kind of had fun like each other. And then we, sadly, we got pitted against each other in one of the Rumble things, and, and we we beat them, but only by a little. And it was a big local like, oh my god, they hated us. <laughs> Their fans hated us. And, you know, it kind of drove us apart. We didn't hang out too much after that. Right. But um, they were always fun. I mean, there was, uh, um, there was one time we opened for George Thurgood at the Inn Square Men's Bar, mm-hmm. and he had Ian Stewart from the Stones playing, and everyone was excited because they thought that maybe, just maybe, some of the other Stones might show up. Right. And uh, so the place was just packed to the rafters, and no one wanted to hear us at all. <laughs> everyone was there to see, you know, Keith Richards. Right. So that was, that was a tough gig, but we kind of won them over. Yep. It was good. They didn't want to. They didn't want to watch us, but they ended up having a decent time. So uh, we played with George a lot because he was a friend through Rounder. At that time, you know, we 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 played with Peter Dayton a lot. I don't know if he ended up being that friend. He was the past, which was a really great early Boston man. Mm-hmm. They were they were one of the best. The first location of the actual studio, like after you moved out of the place in Dorchester, where was that? It was at 169 Norfolk Avenue in Roxbury, Mass, which is across a big field, athletic field from where Mass Ave goes across, um, kind of at the top of where in the intersection of Roxbury and, and uh, Boston. So it's very industrial district. The building had been a commercial laundry, and it was about a city block. It was just enormous. And this guy had, I don't know if he got it in a bankruptcy auction or if he took it over somehow, but we met the landlord and he was just like, I don't know what to do with this. You know, he gave us a, a chunk of it. He's like, sure. Yeah. Take this part, whatever, you know? And, but for a long time, a lot of it remained vacant and we used to drag mics out there at night, you know, and, and use this enormous space that we just kind of were next to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was a cool, it was, a, you know, it was dirty. It was, it was pretty nasty, but, the rock band, the rock bands liked it because they showed up and they were like, oh, this looks like my practice space. You know, it's, it's not, you know, it, it certainly did not have that dentist office wood paneling, uh, recessed lighting kind of thing, you know? Right. So it was very rock. People drew on the walls, graffitied on the walls. And, <laughs> you know, after, after five, six, seven years there, it was just, you know, it was like the CBGB's bathroom. Right. <laughs> This is you, Sean, Jim Fitting of the Sex Execs, and then Joe Harvard. Tell me about Joe's band, The Bones. I don't know anything about that band. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, yeah, it was a trio. 
Joe wrote songs, and he um, had had a big adventure in his life where he went over to Saudi Arabia and had a romance with with a, one of the princesses there, <laughs> and uh, he he wore a burqa and he, he went on some kind of archaeological dig, but he ended up somehow rocking it out. And when we when we got to know him, he was kind of a weed dealer for for a lot of Harvard students. Mm. He had a very large clientele of Harvard people who wanted weed and he had a connection to somewhere. I don't know where. Um, and so, you know, he had been, he had actually been attending Harvard, but I believe he was kicked out or asked to leave. Um, <laughs> he, he was on one of those moth story hours talking about his short time at Harvard. Mm-hmm. But anyway, everyone called him Joe Harvard because, you know, he was from East Boston, but he'd been to Harvard. So he was Joe Harvard. <laughs> I, um, I, th- I thought maybe that was too much of a coincidence that his name would actually be. No, Harvard. no, it's, that, was, that was not his real name. Um, but he wanted to, you know, he um, he had some extra cash for sure, and he really helped us uh, get going, you know, get, get some of the equipment. And because uh, he wanted to do it too, he wanted to record his band. At, at first, when we founded the studio, it was kind of like everyone wanted to record their own projects. You right. Know? Um, so we did it that was kind of the way George Mountain founded air. Like he wanted it to be like a group of producers who needed a studio and they would share the cost of the studio and I'll get pieces of time. Right. That's sort of the hippie dream, but it doesn't really ever work out quite that way. (laughs) Right. Um, And neither ours didn't work out that way either, but at first it's what we were trying to have sort of a collective. It seems, it seems like this first studio was a, maybe in a bit of a rough neighborhood. It's a little rough, yeah. 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 Uh, we, we didn't have a name for it, and a friend of ours, Bill Conway, who recently died, who was in the drummer in Morphine, mm-hmm. he um, he was helping us carpentry, he built some walls inside, and he had left some drunk in his truck, which had kind of a topper on it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think he didn't realize where he was, really. We were all kind of new to the area. And uh, so we came down there, and they had busted open the topper and stolen his drums, and I don't know who they are, but <laughs> the people who did it. Yeah. And uh, somebody said something like, Jesus Christ, it's like Fort Apache around here. And uh, we all looked at each other, and that was, that was the name. But yeah, you know, I, I lost people stole a battery out of the car. People, I left a bottle of wine, a bottle of wine in the back of the car, and they broke the window and took it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one day, Joe Harvard had a little Toyota truck with a top, you know, top of it. He drove around, and... Uh, one night he came out at about 3 a.m. and it was flipped over in the middle of the street burning. Wow. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a, a crime rough, but it wasn't like nobody ever got uh, attacked right. or right. Um, you know, physically threatened, really, yeah. you know, that I recall. I might be wrong, but I really don't think. It was all just, you know, someone stole this or bashed the window or, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, we had whole cars stolen. People would, bands would come down and go, hey, do they tow around here? And they'd say, like, call the police. Right. It's stolen. They do not tow around here. Okay, so I have it that, you know, one of the first outside bands, other than your own bands, that maybe went on to some acclaim that, that you recorded at this first location would have been the Pixies. Yep. They were one of the first bands. Because... One of the first, I mean, Gary had reached out to the people in Sewing Muses. He had, he worked with Tanya at the, the architecture firm that they both worked at. You're talking Gary um, Smith at, now. Yeah, yeah, Gary, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Gary, 
the reason that Pixie, I mean, Gary, Gary was very much a go-getter. You know, he he um, he didn't he had a band, but he I think they may have broken up by that point, and he was very much you know wanted to be a producer, right. and uh, and he also had a lot of administrative skills, like sort of office organizational type of skills that were really valuable. So he kind of came in as a partner, mm-hmm. and he had already done the demo tape that got throwing music signed um, on his own. I don't know where he did that. Right we went after the Pixies very much. Like we went after them. We, we went to their gigs and we said, you should let us record you. You should come to our studio. And, um, they came and tried it and liked it and then came back for a formal recording. But that was the demo. The purple tape was one of the first things we did. And Gary got that around and he got it to Ivo at 4AD and Ivo signed them too, obviously in the rest of history. But, um, so that was kind of, you know, I don't think we had a reputation as being talent scouts, but I just think we were a bit very proactive about, right. you know, we weren't just going to take, we weren't going to wait for the phone to ring. Like our idea was to go after the best band that we could find, mm-hmm. you know, and get them to, you know, why not record with us? <laughs> it didn't seem like there's any reason not to, you know what I mean? Like we had sure. pretty good gear and, you know, affordable, I'm I mean, sure compared to some of the other options anyways. I don't even think, we, we never tried to make money. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the Pixies paid, but it, it wasn't much. You know, it wasn't about that. Yeah. I mean, everybody could see that. You know, you gotta, you gotta do something. You're not gonna get paid until you do something. Have like a million toy record. You know, until you have a hit. Right. So, you know, the, the idea was, but that, it was really good training in the sort of Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell kind of way. Like the ten thousand hours deal. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. came in there and we just like. Every night there'd be a band, they'd show up, open the door, there they are, they got their amps, you know, load them in, set them up, get a, get a sound, get songs, what songs do you have, okay, you know, the, the chorus of this doesn't, you know, it's not long enough or something, you know, like, you kind of dick with the song, you get it down, you do the overdubs, you do the mix, and at two in the morning, you're done, you know, and you, you do that day after day after day with people throwing stuff at you that you don't, you know, you don't necessarily know it before you come in. You don't have a chance to do pre-production or anything. You're just kind of doing a demo, yeah. but it's got to, you know, how good can you make it? How exciting can you make it? You know? And, uh, I feel like, uh, that was, I mean, there was one day I did like 57 days in a row or something. <laughs> and then I had like a day off and I did another like 15 days in a row or something. Wow. <laughs> it was just completely, I really had no life, you know, <laughs> except for the studio. Right. Okay, so was the second location the the twenty four track space, uh, the Camp Street one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we got that in eighty seven. We just knew the, the when Rounder Records uh, sold it, sold George Thurgood's contract when he got really hot in the sort of bad to the bone era. Mm-hmm. EMI paid him a lot of money to buy out the contract because they had a number of you know records, and so they bought a building in Cambridge, and it had it was at the time it must have seemed like a, it was, it's a pretty big building, but it was a one camp street in North Cambridge and uh, they had a lot of space and they made a deal with the guy who had recorded George Thurgood for them to, they wanted to have their own studio, you know, as part of their whole, like we're a record company and we're all groovy. So they built a studio in the building, but very quickly things soured between them and the guy who was running it. Mm. And, um, but they had given him control of the space. They had given him a lease on the space. So, we were able to, he, he kind of flamed out and left town and we were able to buy the lease from him for, and all the equipment for a pretty reasonable price. Joe Harvard was involved in that as well. Uh, you know, he, he and his parents, his parents took out a loan on their house 
and in East Boston and, and uh, bought, uh, bought the, the, the lease from Nagy. So we had 13 years at like a ridiculously low rent there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of, we put different equipment, gradually put different equipment in that studio. But it, that was a, that was a big thing. I mean, that, that's where we recorded, but so to bring it all home. Right. So if you, if you see Fort Apache North referenced, th- that would be this location. Uh, generally up until about 90, there was a point at which, um, the, the South studio went away and we had two places in North Cambridge. Mm. Um, and then, it, then Gary, Gary's management company took over the, the camp street space. And then at some point he got, he gave up, there was a, uh, studio on Edmund street, about a half a mile away. And that's for a lot of the lunchtime concert stuff they did with David Bowie and Radiohead and stuff like that. That was a big room. Mm-hmm. It was a real big 90s kind of room, a little bit too big. But um, then I ended up taking over the the Camp Street space and ran it as Camp Street Studios from about 2002 to 2010. Right. And now it's uh, it's a software development company. Gotcha. Out. But that room was the magic room, in my opinion. The the most a lot of magic happened at 169 Norfolk, but a lot um, had more mojo at uh, at Camp Street, I think. Mm-hmm. So tell me how the spaceman Michael Whitaker factors into this story. Uh, Michael Whitaker, he was a sound man for a lot of the bands in town, um, and he was a good sound man. He knew what he was doing. He had a tendency to sometimes be a little bit high on drugs but um but you know he could he you know we we used him and uh we were friends with him and um so my understanding is at some point jay asked him like jay told us later during that record that they had been offered free studio time and a kind accommodation stuff by a guy in holland Mm. you know this story no he said, I, I don't remember the guy's name, Sean might if you talk to him. He said, you know, come on over, I'll put you up, you can record in my studio, it's a really great studio. And uh, so Jay said, sure, that, you know, I'm not going to say no to a free free thing, you know. Um, but he said that they got over there and the guy said, okay, I have, I just want you to know, I have cameras in every room, I will record you while you're playing, while you're eating, while you're sleeping, I want to record everything of Dinosaur Jr. because Dinosaur Jr. makes clouds of sound. And, Jay, you know... Jay wasn't Jay having, wasn't that. having that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No way, baby. Yeah. So they, they immediately flew home. And I think Jay found himself a little bit at a loss, like he had been planning to do his record in Holland for free. Right. And and he must have asked Spaceman, like, who, you know, who should I do my record with? And space on you, should, you should, said you should get these guys because you know we were making a name for ourselves, and it wasn't it wasn't a crazy thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, I think I remember he called up, you know, and I answered the phone, and he asked some questions about the studio, and I answered them, and he, he I said, he said, okay, I want to book some time, and I said, really, you don't want to know anything else? He goes, no, that's fine. <laughs> so, you know, uh, he showed up in the in that's. He had, at that point he still had the wagon, you know. Yes. So um, he showed up to the wagon full of Marshall cabs and heads. And, um, it's interesting. I don't know. You, you don't necessarily get that magazine vintage guitar, but he was a, a, 
for that record, he was he was pretty influenced by Sean's guitar collection oh. because we had a couple of guitars that were just killers, you know, murderously loud rocking guitars. And he sort of said, whoa, hey, you know, Joe Harvard, he bought one from Joe Harvard that became the Telecaster that his signature Telecaster is modeled after. Oh. Um, it's like a 57 or something like that that Joe had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Joe was sometimes in need of money and I think that Jay caught him at a good time. And I think there's going to be an article. I think Sean is going to do an article about the 61 SG Jr. that Jay played a lot too. It was, we, it was a guitar we called Instant Rock. <laughs> and, so, you know, it was a good, it was a, it was a good, um, kind of a good thing for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. we had the stuff that he needed and, uh, you know, we were used to putting up with people who weren't, didn't necessarily work in traditional ways, you know, right. like, played really loud and you know let's talk about like, that for a minute that i mean obviously pretty famous for the for the volume and i'm assuming they you know they wanted to record it probably as close to stage yeah. volume as they could <laughs> yeah well we the way that studio was laid out we were able to kind of especially because it was just a trio you know mm-hmm. we were able to kind of isolate the amps a little bit and put them in r- different rooms and um, it wasn't particularly hard to do. We were used to bands playing loud. They played a little louder than most, but, you know, it didn't strike. I, I, I wasn't terrified or anything, yeah. <laughs> you know? It was more just like we, were, we weren't really producing it. You know, we were just hired to engineer it. But, um, but, you know, and he wouldn't necessarily ask questions, but he, and in fact, he didn't tell, tell you much. Like, he'd say, um, put up the Neil Young one, put up the Neil Young song, you know, go on, on tape. So we have to find a reel and put it up. The songs had no titles or lyrics for a long time. And um, so it would be like, put up the Led Zeppelin one or oh. put up the Neil Young one. And sometimes we'd put up one and he'd go, no, 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 not that one. <laughs> so he's not, even doing yeah. a, he's not even doing a ghost track or, you know, or a guide vocal or whatever when they're recording no, these. No melodies, no lyrics, just music. Wow. So, um, and then, well, there was, you know, there was a few other things like, like that, the song that Lou sings where it yells, why don't you like me? Yeah. Um, that was just a, you know, that was just a jam. And then, you know, we knew he was going to do that over it, you know, but, um, we didn't get to that till the end. Like most of the musical songs, um, you know, they're pretty well developed musically. So they played them as, as instrumentals. And then I remember Jay, like, I remember Freak Scene, I think that was called the, maybe that was the Neil Young one. I can't remember, but, um, he went one night. He just said, "Okay, I gotta write some lyrics. I'll come back to my house." Wow! And uh, <laughs> and he came back with freak seed. So uh, we were kind of amazed. Yeah. And you know, it, it all just went from there. I mean, he, you know, he was pretty laconic about vocals. We didn't do a million takes or anything. You know, uh, you know, it was uh, kind of a fun record to do. We, you know, it was a challenge for sure. I felt like we were working. We were, we were, you know, kind of functioning in a almost in a year that we hadn't been in before you know mm-hmm. just because jay had a lot of ideas and you know i don't know what it's like to make a record with them now but um you know they were they were still a band lou and jay weren't getting along that well but um at least they showed up and played and you know they weren't just they were dysfunctional at that point but it was yeah. it, you know <laughs> it was obvious to you that there was tension yeah yeah they didn't have any fights or anything. Right. It was just more like, uh, we got, 
Jay's not going to get in a fight. He's yeah. just going to not talk to you. Right. <laughs> you know. You mentioned, you know, that you and Sean are, how are you working together on this? I mean, as far as dividing labor, you know, you said you weren't really producing it. And I assume what you mean by that is like a lot of these ideas on the record for overdubs, like were coming from Jay and not from you and Sean. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't know the songs at all. You know, we had no, we had no opportunity to comment on structure or, you know, arrangement or, you know, which is fine. I mean, we were used to working that way. That was nothing new, you know. Here, how should we do this, you know? And then you come up with an idea, and then you're starting to shape the sound and how it'll help shape it, you know? Yeah. But with Jay, you know, he just, he's going to do what he's going to do. Right. And, I mean, I think there might have been one or two times when, you know, he would take a suggestion. Or he wasn't, like, a jerk about it, really, but he just, you know, he had a vision. And when someone has a vision, you let them do it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, sometimes production is what you don't do. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, people think that producers do a lot, but a lot of times what they do is just try to create a situation when there's, in which there's only one right thing to do and then do it. You know, um, so I don't think Jay has ever given even Slade. He, he bonded to Slade a little bit more because Jay, like I was more of the technical guy and the engineer and stuff, and Slade was a little bit more of the, like, how you know the flow guy, the the vibe guy, and what what uh, you know what is it? What's the song making me think of that kind of thing? So Slade did engineering too, for sure. But it's just um, I think I think Jay was a little, Sean and Jay were a little bit more kindred spirits than Jay and I. Were, you know, he, he kind of I, I got a little bit annoyed at the at the ultra laconic lack of communication, you know, right, that kind right. of thing. Yeah. And Slade, Slade, Slade appreciated the em, the eminent slackitude of Jay, you know. <laughs> so I think I think maybe Jay thought I judged him a little bit or something, right? Yeah, which he wasn't interested in being judged. So, yeah, you know. The basically the bed tracks were recorded, and and then I'm guessing leads and and probably vocals last. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most of the lead guitar mm-hmm. is probably overdubbed. Oh yeah, yeah. He didn't. I don't remember him taking a whole lot of live solos. And there's some harmony guitar things that are overdubbed. And, yeah. Um. You know, it was mostly just guitar stuff. I don't think we did a whole lot of, you know, wacky shit. Over, you know, there's not. You know, there's not a lot of background vocals really or anything. It's truly straightforward. Yeah. So. There's a few things like uh, one song you can hear someone like shaking a reverb tank. You know, and there's some acoustic right. guitar overdubs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but those were all, you know, just meat and potatoes, you know, like nothing, you know, that was all pretty easy. It didn't, I don't remember, I don't remember how much time there was, but it might, probably wasn't more than a week. Yeah. So from, you know, from soup to nuts, you know, mixing and everything. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then we mixed on, on tape. One, one a long song on the side is all cut up. I remember we, we mixed it. We did all kinds of different things, and then Jay sort of um, guided us through the edit he wanted between all the different parts. So there's a lot of splicing in that one. And then one of the last things we did was Lou, you know, screaming, "How do you like me?" Yeah, which yeah. Was <laughs> that you know was that was for that was one take. <laughs> His vocal. Oh yeah, God yeah, yeah, something like that. You know, you're, you're only gonna, and so you got to make sure you get it 
practice for sure. Yeah. We, were, we were used to that kind of thing by then. You don't you don't have them run one down and they go, okay, now let's do it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think that was all. Do you, Do you remember one. hearing? You know, once the vocal was on Freak Scene, did you did you know that was going to be kind of the quote unquote hit of the record? Do you think? Um, kinda. You know, I mean, just because it was so chasey, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that, you know, um, it was like the perfect distillation of that sort of slacker frame of mind. And we didn't set out to do that, but it just did it, you know, and in a way he's been writing that same song over and over again for years. But, um, yeah, that one's awesome. And that, that's the one that really got things going. Like they, they really got into that one over in England and, uh, you know, all of a sudden when they said, what have you done? And we said that, they go, oh, okay. Do you think Bug kind of helped, you know, establish the studio? Like, did you get a lot of work because of it, maybe? Yeah, yes and no. We had a lot of work anyway, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we were pretty, that, the studio was just solid, you know. It was like, you had to, we had problems getting enough engineers to handle it, you know. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, very quickly, I mean, in that early 90s era, which is a little after Bug, obviously, but FNX, the local alternative radio station, would have their, their 100 top local songs. We would have like 45 of them. Wow. You know, sometimes more than that. You know, like, and, and probably six out of the top 10. I mean, it just was, you know, the road to, the road to recording success ran through Fort Apache. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. people had, people, in the golden era, which that was, you know, people were like, how do, how do I get time? <laughs> you know, what if someone cancels? So, and, you know, we had bands coming in from, you know, from England, especially a lot of, you know, we were doing a lot of international work and, uh, you know, it was, that was a great period. It was a tremendous, you know, whirlwind of, you know, excitement. And we were right in the middle of it and didn't, you know, you almost didn't really know it. At some point, I remember thinking, like, these are probably the, the good old days right now, you know? <laughs> well, and, and a lot in your own backyard, too. I mean, the Boston scene was just, you know, yeah, the just yeah, hooking at that got point. Famous and the, yeah. yeah, everybody everybody was getting label deals. Bullet the Volta got on RCA. Yeah. I mean, even True to Right, the, the Jim's band, you know, they had, score, they had a substantial hit on RCA, and then Morphine started. That, that took off. And, mm -hmm. um, the, big thing, the thing that got us a lot of work was mixing the band. When we, when we mixed the bends at Fort Apache and we had our whole like Neve setup going, that's after that, the three or four years was like mixed work. You're talking, we're, we're talking Radiohead right. now for, for our listeners. Yeah. Well, that, the, yes, the bends by Radiohead. Yeah. But, um, you know, when we, when we, when we hit with that, you know, people were like, I want that sound, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, you know, that lasted until maybe 98 or 99, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, and that's when, that's when the whole Britpop thing kind of died and everything kind of started turning into the Limp Bizkit and coin and stuff. Right. So that's, things got a little weird at that point. <laughs> What's, but, what do you uh, think is the most like famous or well-known record that, that you worked on or the one that, you know, most people that you get asked about the most? Um, the song Creep by Radiohead. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it was recorded, it was released 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's still every day now streaming 600,000 plus times a day. Wow, yeah. Um, just on Spotify, I don't know, the title won't give me numbers or anything, but if you look on Spotify, it's, we're getting, we're heading up toward a billion plays. It's crazy. Which for a class, 
saying rock thing is pretty much allowed. I mean, obviously Ed Sheeran has songs with two or three billion plays, yeah. but uh, so you can't get too cocky. But uh, <laughs> but in terms of you know of of a song that people oh you know um, that's you know that's far and away. I mean, even Radiohead, you know. Um, Creep is at like almost 900 million, and then the the nearest song to that is like 300 million, like oh, fake wow. plastic trees or something. Yeah. So it's not it's not subtle which song. It, you know, people say like, does Radiohead hate Creep? It's like, no, they do not. <laughs> you don't understand. That song pays off big. Yeah. So. I'm just gonna throw out a few of the other SST artists or you know albums that you worked on, and if you have any sure. thoughts about them. Let her, let yeah. rip. You did Dost Dahman's Mousetrap, not an SST release, but uh, they were on SST. Yeah. Another right. really loud well, band, too. <laughs> yeah, fun. You know, f- f- Friends of Friends, they came up. It was a quick, really cheap record. Um, you know, nice guys. I thought it was, you know, it was fun to do. It was one of those ones that we just we had to bang it out fast. Yep. And uh, Lyle, you know, the drummer now is pretty influential music supervisor so yeah, yeah. interesting second career for him or third or whatever it was um sadly those guys got sued out of existence because they thumbed their nose at michael jackson remember that yep <laughs> yeah they, they 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 recorded a song without permission and they just got sued out of existence mm-hmm. <laughs> yep bad okay a boston band volcano sons you worked on i believe bumper crop and then an SST release, Thing of Beauty. Yes, I did a few things for um, Volcano Sons. That was one of those projects that was, they had booked, booked they, they would come in and book time, you know, here and there, a day, an afternoon, an evening, and different people ended up working on the record. So I worked on pieces of that record, hmm. but I didn't have any, I don't feel like I had any real, a lot of input in it. Sean was more involved with that band. Mm-hmm. Um as sort of the guy who was running the record. And then I would do, I would, I would pick up shifts for him, you know, like we were like a, it was like a restaurant or something, you know, like I can't do my, I can't do Thursday night. Can you <laughs> take it? You know, like right. that kind of thing, which was, you know, that was one of the things that was really fun about it. It was, uh, it, it, you know, it was like a team. Everyone could, everyone could cover, you know? Right. Right. And uh, so, you know, I mean, Peter Prescott, I've known, I knew from Mission to Burma and yeah. I ended up working with Mission to Burma later. Um, you know, cool guy. Uh, definitely one of the giants of the scene mm-hmm. in our time. So, yep. Okay, a bit later, you did Firehose, Fly in the Flannel. Great sounding record. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my friend, uh, I had done some work on a soundtrack for a guy who was a mu- music supervisor. And uh, then he got a job doing AR for Columbia. And uh, he said, I want you to do this Firehose record. And it was. Uh, it was really like why it was super organized. Um, you know, from the minute I got there, it was just all about jam and econo. Right. You know, like we jam econo <laughs> <laughs> and like they all go in the van, they all sleep in one room, but they come home from tour with money, you know, yeah. like Ed from Ohio, uh, showed up in a fancy new, new car. And I was like, wow, nice car. And he goes, yeah, man, we jam econo. <laughs> so, um, we worked in this really cool little studio in Venice where they had recorded the first Lucinda Williams record, actually, interestingly enough. Mm. And um, great, you know, Neve Board, good studio, really fun, sounded good, fun. And uh, and Watt, this is the first time I'd ever done this, Watt kept an extremely 
business-like schedule. Like it was 10 to six every day, weekdays, you know, like Monday through Friday, 10 to six. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'd show up at 10, we'd hit, we'd start doing stuff at 10 and six, and we'd go. And it didn't, I, I really didn't, why you want to do it that way. I was kind of away. But, but I found out later that his father was dying and mm. he, every night he was going to the hospital to see his dad and mm. his dad had a last chance. Mm. But he, he didn't say a word about it. Yeah. You know, like it was just like, whatever. But, uh, um, you know, same thing. Like that was a whole trip because that was during the first, um, you know, Desert Storm one, the, the Kuwait War, right? Yeah, um, with George, George Herbert Walker Bush, mm-hmm. and I remember I got to L.A. and all the, the L.A. the newsstands were all like war, you know, exclusive <laughs> war coverage. You know, it was that, and I remember people were really worried on the airline, on the airplane, mm-hmm. about bombs. They made me turn all my equipment on, and they thought my microphones were done. Oh wow! You know, I was, I was trying to take some stuff with me, and it was really a pain in the ass. <laughs> okay, uh, you worked uh, with Buffalo Tom. Sure. Yep. Yeah, they were on us this year, weren't they? Yep. Um, not until the third record, though. Jay and Sean did the first one, and then maybe they did the second one too, or something. Or was that just Sean? I think just Sean then, the second one. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Bird Rain, and then he. Then he wanted to bring me in. At that point, we were pretty much a team, and it was like, well, if we're going to do another one, we should do it together. And uh, that was tale, uh, Let Me Come Over, which which is a great record. Same kind of thing. Like when, The first time I heard that song, Taillights Fade, I had that, I was like, whoa. That's going to be a big one. Because yeah. when, when a song makes you feel sad, <laughs> yeah. you know that something's going on. So um, the only problem with that one was we, we got to the end, and we, we were... We mixed it, but we weren't really in the right place to mix it. Like we were trying to do it at an SSL studio, and, and so the label stepped in and hired a guy to mix it for a ton of money. And we realized like, that we paid more to mix the record than we got paid to produce and mix it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's when I realized that we need to get a manager and you know start making better deals, right? <laughs> you know? You sort of have, you know, you don't know what's possible until you realize, like, this guy just got paid that much money yeah. to, to come in and just mix it for t- five days. Yeah, know? no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you, you mentioned, you know, the that you took over, I believe, around 2002 of, of Fort Apache, and I, I believe the, the studio closed around 2010. Uh, but you're still, yeah. you'll, you're still engineering records. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, it just became too cumbersome to try and have a studio. I mean, dur- during the 2000s, I was maintaining a studio that had, you know, I had everything. I had Mellotrons and Marshall Stacks and all kinds of snare drums and lots of cool guitars. And I, I had tons of stuff mm-hmm. to make records with. And, you know, just more and more as the decade went on, people just called up and said, well, how much is it? Yeah. And I'd say, well, it's $1,200 a day, but I have all this cool stuff. And then be like, well, dude, it's two, it's two hundred a day. Yep. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to tell you. You know, the whole the whole record industry, the whole record label thing dried up. You know, yeah, yeah. When when I started in 2002, I was still getting budgets from labels to make records that were pretty reasonable. You know, and then by the end, by 2010, I wasn't working for labels at all. I still don't yeah. hardly ever. You know, 
I mostly work for the artists. So you know, uh, what, and, what are your thoughts on, you know, the state of the industry, like the, as, as far as, you know, running a studio goes today? Well, I, I personally wouldn't do it. I mean, it's something that it's something you have to go through. You want to get rid of, mm-hmm. um, that would be a way to do it. Um, uh, it's not a practical, it's not a good business model Yeah, because, um, there's, you know, you're completely undercut by everyone's at home studio. I, I mean, I work at home now myself. It was, it was the best decision for me. You know, I just took the, the heart of my studio and rebuilt it in my, in my house. I have a large room in the house, you know, and, and, uh, I mostly mix out here. I do some recording sometimes. And then I go to other places to record. I go to Brooklyn or San Francisco or whatever, you know, right, and, right. and, uh, and re- record. Get me? What are you working on now? Well, right now, yeah, I told you my friend Bill Conway died, the guy that was in Morphe. Right, yeah. And, uh, we're working on a bunch of people that played with him and we're friends with them that have done a recording that I'm mixing to, it'll, It'll probably come out. He wrote some really great songs right at the end of his life. I kind of almost out of nowhere. Right. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's, I think it's something we all feel like we want to do. And it's pretty, it's pretty heartfelt. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I do archival stuff. Like I'm working with Mark Mulcahy from Miracle Legion. Mm-hmm. He's reissuing the Miracle Legion catalog and we're, I'm actually remixing one of their records because they always hated the mix of it. Right. And uh, so I'm trying to come up with a something that improves on the 80s sort of, you know, the 80s kind of gated snare sound yeah. kind yeah. of reverb thing. Yeah. So I'm trying to make that work. It's, that's a little bit difficult, but it's fun. Um, you know, there's a lot of bands. There's plenty of bands who need to record. I just did a record actually for a label in England called Dirty Hit. Um, the group, there's a group called Pretty Sick. This woman who's from New York, mm-hmm. and uh, it's that's really good too. I, I think that's going to make some noise because they're a label that has had some success, and they're not unwilling to they're willing to promote records. You know, mm-hmm. so, that's the thing. It's like l- labels aren't really interested in certainly not interested in rock bands anymore. You know, yeah. And I mean, it brings me back to thoughts about SST because SST, you know, they were they knew what they liked and they put out some great music. Um, but as a company to deal with, you know, for all the artists, it was just a nightmare. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, I don't know if anyone's going into detail about this and God knows I wasn't there to see it, but you know, my understanding is when they needed money, they would just press up some more who's could do records and sell them. You know, they just stole all the money and that's what, you know, that's the, the sad fallacy of, the typical, the typical indie label thing, you know, it's like yeah. you get a record out and you, maybe you get some support from them, maybe a little bit of a budget, but you know, it's going to be hard to get paid. Yeah. And you know, working at, I worked at Rounder for years and I saw the labels and how they, you know, having a hit for a label is almost spells doom because you end up mortgaging everything to press more copies up. And then if they don't sell your stock with them, and, right, right. you know, it, it was really up and down for those guys. I, I don't know how they financed that business and how they made it work, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we never didn't get paid by them, but we were also working for minuscule amounts of money. Right on, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. No worries, man. All right, take care. Bye bye. Bye. Awesome. So cool to hear from you know people who were who were actually there, laying it down, dealing with the volume. 
<laughs> at the time, which which it's interesting to hear, you know, didn't really seem odd. You know, we all hear about the legendary volume of Dinosaur Jr., but I guess, you know, a lot of bands were playing loud those days in the studio. Das Damen, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, the thing that I kept on thinking about when listening, uh, you know, about the description of the bands, how busy they were, man. Uh, two things, I guess, I was thinking about is how, you know, and this is obviously very nostalgic for me to, to think this way, but it's too bad that that, that will probably never happen again. No. I don't know. I mean, maybe it wasn't as good as I like to think it is, but don't, don't, you know, harsh my... Well, it, it was, Ryan. Here's just a few of the records done at Fort Apache. Uh, Big Dipper, Heavens and Craps. Uh, the Buffalo Tom self-titled record mm -hmm. uh, that we'll be getting to. And their big breakthrough record, Let Me Come Over. Uh, Bullet La Volta, The Gift. Come, 1111, Dost Domin's Mousetrap, Dino's Green Mind. Uh, that perfect EP, Tommy Stinson. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pell-Mell's Interstate, Moving Targets, Brave Noise, and Fall Records. Uh, tons of other records. A zillion records for Tang, uh, Sebado 3, Bake Sale, Harmacy, Super Chunks, where, uh, Here's Where the Strings Come In, Uncle Tupelo's No Depression, so many records. Like Paul says in the in the interview, uh, the road to recording success ran through Fort Apache. Yeah. I was and the second thing I was thinking of is that comp that everyone should check out. This is Fort Apache from ninety five, which has a lot of those bands in it. You know, it has Dinosaur Jr. on it, Lemonheads, The Walkabouts, Buffalo Tom, Sebado, Radiohead, Juliana Hatfield, Billy Bragg. Just, you know, the American indie underground went through Fort Apache for sure. Uh, that website consequence did a cool piece about the studio by Ryan Bray. Uh, here's Lou from that article on recording bug. Jay put the record together and really dictated what he wanted from Murph and I, the record before that was a little more freewheeling and collaborative, but here Jay was locking down the style of the band at the time. It almost seemed like a step backward, but in reality, the record's great. He did a great job. Jay was sort of left alone to do all his stuff. Murph and I went in and did our parts and then just got the fuck out of Jay's way. At that point, <laughs> he just wasn't happy, so we stayed clear <laughs> Stayed clear of him. Yeah. Uh, and here's Sean Slade from the same article. I would say when Dinosaur Jr. first came in, Jay refused to talk to us. <laughs> Whenever we made a suggestion like, what if we put an amplifier over here? He'd say, I don't know. <laughs> it's like an interview with Jay Vasquez. Uh, but we had a breakthrough the next day when I turned around and said, what's all this I don't know shit? <laughs> he started to laugh, then we became friends. Right on. Uh, so the sex execs, Ryan, new wave band from Boston, active 81 to 84, along with Paul, Sean, and Sean Slade, and Jim Fitting, Jerome Dupree, later of Morphine, on drums, uh, Russ Gershon on sax. Russ later formed the jazz group Either Orchestra and started the label Accurate Records. Uh, and Jerome also played with them. Uh, Walter Clay on vocals, Andrew Barnaby on guitar, and Ted Pine on keys. Jim Fitting honked a mean bobo and played for many years in Boston blues rock band Treat Her Right, along with Mark Sandman of Morphine. Uh, the sex execs had a local hit, My Ex, and 
you know, from what I've heard of the band, they're, they're kind of like from the talking head school of funky new wave. Walter Clay, the vocalist, kind of had a big baritone voice. Rock journalist Dave Marsh described them as David Byrne flashing a hard on. <laughs> there was a famous Boston Battle of the Bands style competition in 1983 called uh, the Fifth Rock and Roll Rumble, which they infamously uh, came in second for, beating out the Del Fuegos, uh, came in behind the band Till Tuesday. Uh, their 30-minute performance from this gig is up on YouTube, and it's pretty great, uh, the sex execs. A real good time band for sure. Watch at least the first three songs of that. It's really good. It, it got me thinking as I was watching it, you know, in an era where everything is reissued, it's kind of shocking when you come across something like this and, and it hasn't been, especially mm. given the credentials of some of these members. Yeah, good call. And then speaking of the Rock and Roll Rumble, Ryan, the first one was held in 1978 at the Inn Square Men's Bar in Cambridge. And just a, just the name of that venue just makes you think of early punk, right? Oh yeah, like that's the kind of place an early punk show would would go would go down at. Indeed, indeed, yep. yep. And the winner of that was La Peste, oh. uh, who Paul mentioned as one of you know the the very best early Boston bands of the punk era, and I'm pretty sure Peter Prescott also name checked them a few weeks ago when we had him on. Their 1978 single "Better Off Dead" is just totally killer first wave punk, and their their recorded output has been packaged up a few times, including uh, by Matador. A few other interesting things I pulled out of the interview, Ryan, for me, weird to think about Jay playing a telly or an SG like Paul mentions he did on this record. Mm-hmm. He's just so associated with jazz masters. I'm wondering, Ryan, in in any of your uh, Mojack stacks. If you found any mention of these aborted sessions in Holland, uh, there is in the Dinosaur Junior book some discussion about traveling to to Europe just before, but it doesn't talk about how they were going to, you know. It was like it was like a you know a scam or something that they wanted to record them almost like <laughs> a vo- like a voyeur or something like that. No, yeah. I didn't. I didn't find anything about that. Okay, cool mention of Das Damen. Unfortunately, the mention comes with them, quote, getting sued into <laughs> out of existence, I think is how Paul puts it. We'll be getting into that entire debacle in a few weeks. But the most interesting thing Paul talked about for me, and I'm curious if you, if you found any mention of this in any of your research, that the songs had no titles or lyrics going into the studio. Mm-hmm. I, no. nev- I never would have imagined Jay working like that. I wonder if it was just for Bug or if like that's his method more generally. I don't know. I don't know. I, I did find a lot about how it felt rushed for yeah. them to run in and record Bug, but nothing about, and therefore we didn't have this ready. Well, you know, for me, as I listen to this, this stuff just sounds so fully formed and Jay was such a control freak. It's just hard for me to picture them recording this entire thing instrumentally and then him just writing all the lyrics like at once super fast and then coming in and and putting down the vocals. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I, I agree with you so much that I think there's a pretty good chance that Jay 
may not have had them all written down in one place, but he had been working them out in his, yeah. in his mind. He probably had, he wasn't coming in cold, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, and a lot of the song titles, it, you know, when you, when Paul says, you know, the songs didn't have titles, they referred to them as the Neil Young song or whatever, right? Yeah. Like a lot of these titles have nothing to do with anything lyrically or almost <laughs> nothing to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I think, probably the only album where Jay says babe on it and he says it twice. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. That seems odd for for Jay to be talking about anyone as babe. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I feel like Jay would write, be better at like writing songs about egg salad or something like that <laughs> or skateboarding or something, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Ryan, let's get into this record. History lesson part two. All right. So let's stay though in Fort Apache and kick off the tracks with some Spaceman. Okay. And here's what Michael Whitaker wrote about Bug. Rising from the primeval world of the second millennia AD, Bug, the second SST release for Dinosaur Jr., mercilessly subdues the unsuspecting planet, experience the monstrous rock of freak scene, and let it ride as Jay, Lou, and Murph craft nine songs of beauty and inhuman power. LP, cassette, and CD. Yeah, so this came out uh, on SST in the US, Blast First in the UK on CD and LP. Came out a, on a bunch of different labels. Came out yeah. on LP on Dutch label Torso. Yeah. Uh, came out with a bonus 7-inch in Germany on Normal Records. Um, a single-sided 7-inch with the you know 45-second track Throwdown, which we'll be seeing a couple times on the Just Like Heaven single and the Fossils comp. Uh, came out on Australian label, a go-go on LP. They also toured Australia on, with, for this release. Uh, it, and as you mentioned earlier, it's been reissued on a bunch of labels starting in 2005. Tons, yeah. You know, and as recently as 2020. And SST also released it uh, on a bunch of different colored vinyl, which is not something we've seen a lot of in 1988. Mm -hmm. Like on purple marbled vinyl, magenta, brown, purple translucent. It starts, Ryan, with the song Freak Scene, one of their most well-known songs. So what do you think, Ryan, are the top five played tracks on Spotify by Dinosaur Jr.? Oh, oh my God. <sighs> I don't know. I would get it wrong for sure. Well, just, you want... just take a few guesses. <sighs> you don't have to give me all five. What? I would have put, I would put Feel the Pain and Freak Scene in the top five. For sure. Yeah. The fourth one is Freak Scene. That's the fourth most played song. Over six million. Wow. What's plays. number one? Feel the Pain. Yeah. Okay. It, it's closing in on 44 <laughs> million plays. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. You made you made me seem the whole time like I was going to be so wrong on that and it's number one. Okay. What are the other three? I just wanted to see if you could guess any of the other ones. Ugh. The fifth one is Little Fury Things. Okay. Yeah. Number three is Just Like Heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And number two is Start Chopping. Oh, God. Like pretty much everything they made videos for, you know what I mean? Not out there? No. Wow. I know, hey? That's amazing. Start yeah. Chopping, though, is like, that's that might be the best clean guitar sound of all time right there. Yeah. 44 million plays for Feel the Pain, though. Wow. 
Yeah. I'm shocked by that. In comparison to Freak Scene, which is six million. I can't even believe that Freak Scene has six million. I know. Eh? Uh, you know, I have to be honest about this song. Like, this is probably gonna people are gonna freak out when I say this, but I've never understood why this is one of their more popular songs. Like, I love this song. It's awesome. Don't get I do me wrong. too? But it, it's not my favorite on this record. Yeah, mine. Like, I have I have no problem saving this for when we do. You know the freak scene release in a few episodes i can't believe there's so many lame people in the world but 44 million people have listened to feel the pain i just don't get that yeah i know well the video man it's the video right yeah but i guess i don't know why aren't there more cool people oh well <laughs> yeah well i'm glad we agree on that like and like this is a great song don't get me wrong i just i don't you know i, I guess i just i don't understand people's reverence for it in, well, in their catalog you know yeah i mean it may it might be because you know it was put out as a single maybe yeah. that's why and you mean the format could back in the day very much dictate what was going to get the headlines i don't know but it has those lyrics about you know <laughs> about the band yeah. the weirdness the weirdness flows between us anyone can tell to see us definitely definitely the college rock anthem of the era for sure and there's a video for it too with it, which a uh, has a cool story that we'll get into you know in a couple weeks when we get get mm-hmm. to that single uh it's got two mascus fret melters on it two of them so i'm all yeah. in on that you know i i like the song and apparently the the two f bombs are edited out for the I, I I don't actually own the oh. single, so we'll, I'll be curious when we get to it if you know if it's edited at all. Yeah, I've got I've got an original, and I've got the one from this box mm. set, so we'll have to listen to both. Okay, I thought you were gonna say I was nuts when I said you know Freak Scene isn't my favorite. No, 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 no. Like it's it's well, look, Feel the Pain is not my favorite off that record. Same, you know. They are amazing songs, but it just speaks to how great the music is on this record. My favorite track on this record, you know, is is not Freak Scene. No yeah. way. Okay, the next one is No Bones. You can, you know, hear the tape kind of wind up at the start of this one before Murph counts the song in. You're, you hit the nail earlier, Ryan. What stood out for me on this song and much of this album is Lou's tone and playing. Oh, he really came into his own on this album, right? And he carries the melody of this song. He's playing lots of chords on bass throughout the album, and on this track in particular, he's way up in the mix, way louder than the guitars. Mascus definitely serving the song in the mix. Yeah, his lines on this track are some of the best by Lou ever, ever. They're yeah. just amazing, man. Um, some great acoustic guitar noise sections, some reverb tank splashes yep. on this track. There's also a video for this track. Um, and the, the video for this track and for the Freak Scene track, they are both on the Merge Records CD re-release. Um, and of course on YouTube. The video though for this one, did you look up the, the video director, Zeke Fiddler? No. Ah, so Zeke has a record out on Spin Art Records called Waterproof. Check that record out. It's okay. good. That is a that is a you know a cheap bin deleted items uh, gem. Zeke Fiddler Waterproof. All right. I was thinking, Ryan. Like I'll follow any band or artist. You know, as they change lineups, even lead vocalists, I'll give anything a fair shake. 
I have one criteria, and that is, is it good or not? And I love all of Dinosaur Jr.'s albums. They truly have not made a bad record, in my opinion. Uh, but I do have to say, the J. Lou Murph lineup has chemistry that just creates that complete Dinosaur Jr. sound. Oh, yeah. You know, of course, you've got Jay's writing, and most, you know, he's writing most of the material. Uh, his voice and his guitar playing, it'll always sound like Dinosaur with, with him up front. But. Lou and Murph bring so much to the band, which is really evident on this album and, and all of their reunion material as well. Love, you know, just love this song. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, Lou and Murph don't quit at all when you get to the next song either, right? They always come. Like Lou's bass again is just shining. Yeah. Yeah. That stop start nature of the verses is cool. It, it makes it that much cooler when they go into the chorus for me. Where there's, it, a, there's a triangle or something going going on in that chorus. Yeah, isn't aren't those like isn't the technical term called a pregnant pause? Sure, for all those, I think so. Yeah, but the tambourine when it comes in, it gives the song that just a driving feel, killer, just killer. The guitar break and you know when it just goes down to guitar and then they come in halftime with Jay just busting out a super melodic solo is just trademark dinosaur junior. Oh yeah. And Lou, Lou's baseline, he goes, mm, boo doo doo. Like just <laughs> awesome. Awesome. It, again, as I listen to this, it's really hard for me to imagine these being written as instrumentals with vocals tacked on afterwards. It just, mm -hmm. uh, the next song was, is a favorite of mine. Yeah, we know. I'm always a sucker for well-placed snare shots with reverb to kind of create those transition moments and this song uses that trick perfectly and it's just a great song too yeah great galloping toms from from murph as well and one of the best j solos on the record for me yeah just wahing it up for sure yeah super wah double tracked vocals and again like jay's been playing with these effects and pedals for a few years by now and people are only just catching up to him by this point and then he's got it mastered on this bug album. Yeah. Even if he did crank these out, these lyrics at the last minute, they're excellent. Bottled up, stored away, always ready to give way. Push it farther. Yeah, we know. Clinging, hoping it won't show. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of side one already. And we're flipping it over for let it ride. You know, with Lou's ba bass playing and that slide part, with what sounds like someone doubling it on vocals. Mm. Just so killer. Uh, and then when it goes down into the bass and drums with that day tripper riff part. Oh. <laughs> and then Jay comes in on that, you know, comes in on the riff too. It's just so killer. Fret melters in stereo. Mm -hmm. Then it just stops on a dime and not on the note that you would expect it to. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Amazing distorted bass lines, more bass chords. I just, I can't get enough on this record. Yeah. Uh, track two is the pawn song. That soft, loud, soft, loud thing that this song does is just the total <laughs> blueprint for all these big alternative rock hits to come in the 90s, you know? Yeah. It starts out so pretty. It's pretty deceiving and, and maybe like a bit unassuming. It kind of starts out like, eh this might maybe is not going to be that great of a song, but then it just kicks in with some legendary, you know, J Lou Murph. Yeah. 
it gets it gets amazing again and murph's like machine gun drumming like i say like his rolls and fills are just out of this world and fast on this record yeah i was watching a video of them playing this in a studio from new zealand from 2013 and they they say they never played this live when it came out. Uh, it was just a studio song. Jay says it was too difficult to play mm. back then, and Murph says it now that it's one of his favorites to play. How? Oh. Interesting. L- love the lyrics, too. Pawn mistress, yet you're undecided. I sprinkle looks to let you know. Pain is a wave. Come on, let's ride it. Jump on now, or we'll have to row. Yowza. Uh, the next one is Budge. This one just comes charging out of the gate right mm. in your face. Jay doubling his vocals, even more than doubling probably, harmonizing with himself. It's just so awesome. And man, Murph is just such a rock-solid drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Jay Maskus, being a drummer himself, is just notoriously hard on drummers. I feel like he's definitely acknowledged over the years that he needs Murph to get the sound that's in his head. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you watch that, uh, the Blu-ray of the bug at the 930 club which Mm -hmm. i did last night yep me too like just man like murph hits he hits incredibly hard for starters yeah and you you would have to i think to keep up with just you know i'm obviously the drums are mic'd or whatever but to compete with the volume of those amps (laughs) do you know what i mean well he's only got three marshall stacks i think lou only has two so (laughs) it's insane I can't, you know, the Blu-ray DVD, it's great. Don't get me wrong, but it just makes me want to watch the Freak Scene documentary when it finally comes out here in Canada. Can't wait. Soon enough, man. I think like one more week it'll be out. Yeah, for rent? Like online or what? Yeah, yeah oh, I think okay. so. Yeah, cool. early, early June. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. Oh, sweet. Well, I'll watch it on our break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one is The Post. This is the start of the one-two punch of the the last two downer dirges on this album. <laughs> yeah. I love that they put this back-to-back with, with the next song. Uh, Jay's chugging on that riff that comes after the choruses is just bitching. I've always loved the lyrics to this song. She's my post to lean on, and I just cut her down. Yeah. It's a surprisingly melodic dirge as well. There's some great tuneful passages that I love to sing along with. Yeah. And then the last one, the, you know, the Stooges dirge don't knowing what, you know, we all know about Lou's vocal on this. This is a very tough one to listen to for me. Every time I, you know, I heard it this week, I just cringed. Me too. Every time he started in, you know, it's just so overdriven and so intense. You can just hear the anguish and self-loathing, loathing in his voice. Yeah. And, and just to illustrate that a bit more so everyone knows what we're getting at here, um, here's a couple of quotes about this song. Here's one from Gimme Indie Rock, Andrew Earls. It says, The lurching, impenetrably dense horror metal contains the single vocal line, Why don't you like me? In an especially cruel, passive-aggressive gesture, Mascus delegated the vocal duties to Barlow. Barlow's inhuman screams tore across his vocal cords to the extent that the bassist was coughing up blood into a sink at session's end. Just brutal, brutal, torturous. 
what a thing, man, to put a song like this on a record, like directed at your bandmate. And to get him to sing it. Yeah. Oh. When it goes down to just drums and Lou, it's just so intense. Yeah. I recently actually read a quote, I think it was from Paul Weller, talking about the jam, and he says something to the effect of, any band worth their salt is always on the verge of splitting up. Huh. I don't necessarily agree with that in every case. There's <laughs> bands that get along really well that make amazing music, but there, for some bands, tension is a big part of the creative process for sure. Yeah. 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 The creative tension is something, but I'm not so sure it needs to be quite so unhealthy as it was for Dino during the bug era. Yeah. Well, they, these were young men at this time. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're figuring out everything in a yeah. pressure cooker, right? Uh, I can't remember what, uh, Grant Hart said in that documentary. Um, uh, when, when we had his, uh, his intolerance, episode last week or the week before he said something like you know when you're in a band like if you're married at least then you can get a divorce yeah but when you're in a band it's like you can't you can't just leave you know you have to get like kicked out (laughs) (laughs) this artwork ryan i mean we've covered it but i've always thought it's perfect for the for the for this record and for the the title of the record and the music on it oh yeah it's you know the colors are you know, they're kind of gross. Well, Mara did call them poopy. Yep. Well, it's hard. I mean, I mean, it's iconic at this point, right? So it's hard to picture it maybe as she intended it. Mm-hmm. If you look at it and you go, okay, so some of, on the front cover, there is texture. There are layers there and there is metallic paint on it you can kind of force your mind to see it a bit better in terms of how she's describing it. Um, It does not come across in a two-dimensional, like, brown album art in terms of the way she intended it, though. Yeah. Other than that, very bare-bones packaging. Mm Mm-hmm. No dead wax. I guess we're headed to the ballot result, man. Yeah, man. Ballot result. So as much as Freak Scene is not my favorite, I could go with every song except for Don't. Yeah. I could go for I could go with every song except for Don't. But my favorite is Yeah We Know. Really? 100%. Yeah, I like all these songs. My my picks were No Bones, Yeah We Know, Let It Ride, The Pawn Song, Budge, and The Post. I really like The Post, but Let's do Yeah, We Know. That's a good one. Cool. Even though I like the bass on No Bones the best, Yeah, We Know is my favorite track. Yeah, I'm with you, man. There's not a bad song on this record other than Don't, which is when you watch it live on that <laughs> deep, on that uh, 930 Club, like, I mean, there's a guest vocalist on that one because Lou says he blew his voice out singing it on tour or whatever. But, you know, the the instrumental track is really cool. Mm-hmm. especially what Jay's doing. And it was just a jam too, right? Yeah. When they wrote it. Yeah. I don't know, man. Great record. Oh, yeah. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Paul for being on the show. Totally. Yet another piece of the SST story, the Dinosaur Jr. story. And for me, so cool to get a bit more of that Fort Apache story out there because yeah. that is like Fort Apache deserves its own book, its own documentary, everything. Yeah, man. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Oh, man. 
Next week, Brant, we're going back to PJD. It's SST 217, the Treacherous Jaywalkers La Isla Bonita 12-inch. Can't wait. You and me in the PJD. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.